This podcast has now been referenced in keynote speeches at Arabia HQ, Architects Journal, BD Online, and GB News. They didn't say I was dyslexic. They just said I was terrible at English and I should never continue to do my dissertation because you'll never pass. But as time went on, and like I mentioned, Christmas, I ended up basically without work to do inside the office. And there would be days where I'd be sending internal emails out saying, can anyone give me some work to do? But everybody was too busy. So logically dictates, if you're too busy in a practice, you, you've got a part one who can help. Why didn't you let them help? <laughs> Started the toxic relationship I had in my part one was when they got me to declutter and organize their library which meant me just going around the entire office collecting all their samples that they don't need or collections they had given from carpets or doormongers or stuff like that and I just remember feeling very you know deflated and you know we have two office management admin teams that's their job I even accepted a lower salary of 21,000 and be considered as a part one again because he think thought I just wasn't capable of doing part two work. I had about 50 pounds a month for food and he wouldn't let me get a bar job to pay or supplement the difference of cost I've just lost. He goes, no, I'm absolutely not happy. This is wasting my day and I can't be done with that, Luke. You know, you really, really have done the worst job here hearing the voicemails on the Sunday at this point, he was like, I'm very cross with you. I'm very upset that you aren't coming in to finish this model. And now I'm going to have to pay someone a lot of money to get it done. And you're going to have to start again from the beginning. And I just thought to myself, I'm here working with, I must've done countless hours overtime for free. Mentally struggling if I wanted to even consider architecture anymore. Well, my working day was half eight till five with an hour lunch break at one till two. Yeah. And I asked them, can I split my lunch break in half that I have half an hour now and leave half an hour early? Doesn't affect my working arrangement, doesn't affect my salary. And they said, no, that wow. does not work with their current working policy. I just remember thinking, how dare you? Because you as a director, and this is the architect who then became a director, at a moment's notice, she's up and out, out the door, to go to childcare or something like this. And I couldn't afford childcare. I could barely afford keeping up with the rent. <laughs> Every time I pushed an idea forward, they just shut it down. I have a question for you. Are you an architect and are you broke? If the answer is yes, it's what I've suspected for many years, as I am indeed an architect myself. This podcast is about debt in the profession of architecture, and I want to hear from you. Are you just surviving month to month with no extra money for savings? Or are you seriously broken in debt and stress and worry about your income? Or does your wife, husband, or significant other earn substantially more than you, which gives you a great life, given the ability to choose your clients, when you work and who for, or have you attained financial freedom in architecture? If you're in the first two categories, 
surviving month to month or facing financial difficulties? How is this affecting your mental health? Are you suffering from depression or even despair? Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. I have with me today Luke Roberts, who is an architectural designer based in Bista, UK. Now, Luke has a practice called Storyboard Design, and he set up Storyboard Design in 2022 because he is passionate about sustainable design and wanted to help homeowners and self-builders do design, well, design better homes for their well-being and for the planet. And firstly, just welcome to the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. And I just wanted to start, Luke, asking, how are you today? Yeah, good afternoon. Um, yeah, I'm okay, thank you. Wonderful. Maybe if we can start with, you know, you telling me a little bit about your background and why did you want to study architecture out of everything else that there's out there? Gosh, um, I guess it goes back to when I was about 10 years old, really. You've got the world of computers or home computers and Windows 98 at that point. And I was first introduced to like Sims 1 um, when I was very young. And um, I think I just enjoyed, I was fascinated about space and, you know, making a happy home for your little Sim to run around. And I think from there, I think my passion then sort of grew and I could always, I always like to doodle and draw. Um, I used to end up doing little sketches on backs of napkins or pieces of scrap paper I could find. Mainly it was because I wanted to make a floor plan better for my Sims. <laughs> um, and I think it just grew from there, really. Um, it helped me focus a lot in my early years at school. And it allowed me to sort of focus on what I wanted to do and what I wanted to achieve. And it's weird because nobody in my family has any construction background. Um, you know, my mum is carer or had done care work. And my dad was a merchant navy officer before um, and then became a publican. So none of them really had a background. Even my grandparents, like one was in aviation, another one was in the RAF. <laughs> so it was a really weird one and how I kind of moved into or wanted to do architecture. And I guess the reason, another reason why I wanted to do it is because it's been the only course I could find that you could really shape someone's life and an environment around you. I think for that as a subject or career was really fascinating to me. And that's what led me to do architecture or wanting to study this crazy path we all call <laughs> ARV. After studying architecture, did you grow to love the, the subject more? I think so. I think overall, what I loved about architecture is that, it, you know, the transferable skills you gain from it and, you know, the problem solving. And I think as I've come on to go into my own practice or start up my own architectural design business, I think it's that love of, you know, seeing people who genuinely have problems or can't really think of an answer and just going, let me try and help you. You know, and I guess it's the same feeling like nurses and doctors get. And I guess there is sort of them transferable skills. So even if I didn't like or love architecture, it's I've got different skills, which I also equally love and found passion for. And it gives me a sense of pride. But yeah, and I guess as time passed, and you know, you can always keep learning architecture and, you know, we all the CPD sessions you do and always learning and learning about your environment, learning about who you are as well, really. And I think that's why I continue to do architecture as now, even so on. No, wonderful. You never stop learning in architecture, absolutely. You know, your degree in architecture at the University of Portsmouth, 
I just want to know how was this experience for you? Well, gosh, um, let's start with that. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't a typical uh, student in the sense of I didn't go to visit a university. I didn't uh, travel to university beforehand. I did my selection under, I think it's UCAS, I believe it was. So I don't know if it still is. I think in my head, I just wanted to get away from home as much as I could being an 18 year old. And I think Portsmouth gave me that sense of freedom I never had before. And it was very scary, especially for someone who, I mean, it was scary, but also very much pride as well, because I've worked so hard to get there. And I can, you know, that continuation of like driving myself forward to do something better and from and a place where I came from being very much sort of low background and council housing estates. And like I mentioned, my dad being a publican, so... I sort of lived in a flat above it and, you know, going through a lot of life history. So to end up in Portsmouth University was a massive sense of achievement for me. And I guess the whole bit of the university I liked was meeting new friends. I guess I struggled with at the beginning, but I did meet some great people when I was there. And that sense of being organized and only you are the one to blame for whatever you do or do not do, which is never, you never got that before, before that point. I guess the parts I struggled with was fitting in. I always knew I was slightly different than other people. Uh, I couldn't, for the life of me, I always took everything as like, sort of constructive criticism. So I never would, I've, I found it really hard to ask for support. It's no one's fault. It was just my own. I just, I felt like if you asked for help, it was sort of seen as like you failed at something or you couldn't understand something. And it was only until I think the end of second year, coming into third, the third year of my undergrad, that I actually started to understand that asking for help isn't a bad thing. And I think it was that understanding of like, well, most of this is a tick box exercise. It should be quite relatively straightforward to understand. So when it wasn't, I used to get myself so frustrated. But overall, I think you know, my part one gave me a sense of understanding, a lot more concreted understanding with architecture, at least if I, if it was a career I wanted to go down, and I think I did at that time, I still wanted to do architecture, I wanted to know what it was like being in a practice, and I wanted to know, you know, follow my career and follow my dream as a 10-year-old child at that point. I did struggle academically, and mainly in dyslexia, and I did get tested while I was in Portsmouth, but unfortunately, they didn't deem myself, they didn't say I was dyslexic. They just said I was terrible at English and I should never continue to do my dissertation because you'll never pass. One thing they never understand or comprehend is you have friends and they will always be able to proofread your work for you. Um, and I think that's the biggest sense of achievement I, or experience I can gain from the uh, University of Portsmouth is don't really rely on the academics, rely on your friends. It's much more, much more rewarding, should I say. Wow, I'm pretty shocked by that response from one of the uh, one of the uh, lecturers. That's um, I I wouldn't have thought you would get something like that said to you today, but you never know. No, and that's the thing. And I remember because I always had that sense, understanding that I was, you know, I couldn't with dyslexia. It's one of them really weird things. Is I don't think if someone said to me if I was dyslexic, I would say, well, it depends what you're looking for because I can do math and numbers, because I'd be a terrible student of architecture if I couldn't do math and numbers. But what I could never do is stop myself thinking 40 paragraphs ahead <laughs> when I was writing. So my um, my paragraph structures used to get really modelled up, and doing report writing under time constraints was always a challenge for me. And, and even so, um, when I did my dis uh, dissertation, 
I think I did about four or five reiterations of the same thing just to get my grammar. And then you think two years on, then all computers had their grammar checkers now. So almost it's a thing of the past. <laughs> um, but back when I was doing mine, I had computers, but I couldn't even fathom, you know, an extra half an hour wasn't anything useful for me at that point because it didn't matter. I'd always overthink and overproblemize it. And I think when it came to then studying it, that was really difficult for me is to move past that idea that I can't do report writing and so I had to myself is get better at the other things I could do when you do your dissertation it's it's in year three how did that weigh on you that that pressure and stress obviously and you were relying on friends the first year was difficult because like I mentioned I'm not a great person I mean I can talk my way to the cows come home but I've always struggled to gain friends um I think I, it goes back to when I was a child really I couldn't really uh, like going through high school and stuff and with my parents sort of breaking up when I was about 12 um and then I was passed between the two of them once a week um which is you know a standard <laughs> normal family in my opinion but I always struggled to fit in with school life and and I think that always transferred to outside so even when I was in studying the school of architecture the friends I met at the part you know the first year when you were in halls of residence sort of traveled through with me uh, through first year and second year and third year but I only really had two two people three people I relied on mostly and they would seem to be the people who didn't didn't mind my quirkiness didn't mind my uh, my awkwardness or my uh, over enthusiasm I had for whatever I was doing if it was cycling um throughout Hampshire or if it was trying to do architecture and trying to find and fathom a problem solve which may have been outside the scope what the RBA were looking for in my part one part two uh yeah during my part one sorry but I think it did give me a better understanding and you know I'm probably digressing of the question but I think going into third year where it wasn't early in, it was up until I started third year that actually the pressure of it all became too much almost um I felt that like everything was all led to this one year and that if this one last year fails that's it you you know you <laughs> you fail your uh, diploma and you know you didn't feel like you had that same sense of pressure in uh, first year or second year especially in the first year where you spent the first three months learning primary colors and sketching I seem that as such a waste of academic time when you learn that in primary school and secondary school <laughs> I want to just dig maybe a little bit more into the um the, this dyslexia, which you know the architecture degree. It, it's one of the hardest degrees you can possibly do in in the world. You find out that you believe you've got dyslexia, and how did you sort of cope with with that? You said you've mentioned your friends, but that must have weighed on your yeah. mind. It was. I mean, it was ever after first year when I went to the support unit to ask if I can get diagnosed with dyslexia and if there is any support I can gain. And I, what I was mainly looking for, if I knew there was software that you could get hold of for your computer, should you they deem you required it. And I remember doing a series of mathematical questions and shapes and I passed them all because that wasn't my issue. And I tried to explain to the guy, you can't just I don't know if this is a normal dyslexia test, but you can't just associate dyslexia just on your math and shapes. Yeah. Um, and then having a few questions, because he mentioned like, oh, but you passed your math and you passed your shapes. Um, you just failed on your English. 
um, sentence structure. Well, after that point, I was I was very defeated and trying to build myself back up again after that. And that was in the first few months of my uh, university life. But I think the way I did it, and I would first I would do a set of series of problems. I'd read what I needed to read, um, write them down, and you know I would copy them and basically then rewrite them, and then try to make and then. Once I've got that rewritten article, I'd read then reread it again for the second time. And, you know, and simple things like grammar checkers on Microsoft Word were not capable of picking up my problems. It was it was almost sentence structure, which doesn't exist in Microsoft Word very much. Or maybe it does now. I'm not sure. But at the time, I'd then print that out and hopefully give it to a friend who maybe can read over it, who was non-architecturally related. So he reads it as a, you know, fresh eyes, someone who is clueless about architecture, which is kind of what I was trying to get at. I was trying to make all my writing reports or um, my design kind of scripts. What I do is so anyone can understand it, not just, you know, people of my same academic. And when we go back, when I go back and think back to my dissertation, I guess I was passionate. And I think that's what, you know, I was, my dissertation was about, you know, transportation, the evolving city, um, does, did transport affect growth of a city? And I think I found it fascinating because I was in the city of Portsmouth. I also have family in Winchester and obviously Stoke-on-Trent is being my hometown. Um, and they're all very vastly different cities. And it always fascinated me as to why and how they grew the way they did. And, and I think the passion of wanting to know and learn more is what striving to do my dissertation and I did get a relatively I mean it wasn't the best score because of my grammar but I think they appreciated it because I think I came out with a 47 percent which is not awful but it's not great either but overall in my part one I came out with an upper two one so it just goes to show you that dyslexia shouldn't stop you doing a subject even if you're struggling you know, you, you'll always have family and friends who you can pass it over to and they can check it for you. And if they can't understand it, then reread it again. <laughs> um, and just that is the process I did for many, many times over. But thankfully, the School of Architecture, most of it can be, you can translate any part of it except for your dissertation in into visual. Um, so as long as your visuals are reading well, then what you're actually talking about on Word doesn't necessarily have to be perfect every time. And it, at least that's the, you know, the route I found is as long as you can tell that story, you're you're always going to be coming out as relatively good, if not better. <laughs> no, I appreciate that. And what you said, and it's just it's my my thinking on this is that the extra length of time you've got to plan for to do anything you know if you're printing things out and rereading it but what most people wouldn't need to do that they should do that still you can always yeah. improve but you've got that extra level so i really just really wanted to uh hear your voice on on that one your thoughts i mean i you know it's like when going through high school you know they were always so fixated on getting a c grade or above because it wasn't just for you it's for the school to be able to form perform better at high school I always remember I passed my GCSE math in year 10. So I still had an extra year and I knew I struggled with my English. So I put all my time dedication of the days I used to do math, I would put into um, English. And I was ending up doing something like four days out of the five days at school doing English. And did it get me any better? I don't think it did. You know, I managed to get a C grade, but 
I think that was only by chance. Um, so I always knew I had an issue with English and bringing all that forward and wanting to say to people who always struggle, some people do struggle more than others with English or at least the written uh, side of it as like myself, it shouldn't put you off um, and doing anything really. It's just a matter of finding the right support. You finished your, um, your, your degree, you passed your degree. So I'm just really interested now in how was your part one year at work experience? You know, maybe please describe what you learned, how you were treated, and also everyone wants so, to know what you got paid. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I'm talking back, you know, wind the clock back to 2015 when I just graduated. Um, you know, you, you most students probably know the same thing, but you do a, um, under the RIBA, you do a whole part of subject about doing cv portfolio and interview mock interview exams and you know you whole there's a whole subject modular on it and so coming out of there you know i got two job offers um one and these are all based in hampshire one was in Chelsea, and the other one was in chichester itself um the one i chose was right in the center of the city of chichester and, you know, it was a medium-sized firm of about 35 people. And I was over the moon. I was super excited. Um, it was a new city, new environment. And I couldn't wait to start. Um, I think at this point I got fed up of living in Portsmouth. Um, it wasn't, I mean, it became more, because like I mentioned, the third year was very toxic for me. It just became too much stress. So I then associated my environment around it as quite stressful at that time. So leaving to Chichester, where I started my job, as an architectural assistant, I was on a salary of 18500 um, which wasn't the best, but it was about average, I think, in the area. And, you know, going in, there was me and two other people. And as I mentioned, the, the school was, <laughs> during my studies, like learning software, like the things like what we all know today, like BIM, was only just coming out. I mean, the college, the School of Architecture was rebuilding its whole school at one point during my time. And so we were passed around different lecture halls and stuff, but we never really got to learn all the software. So, but the software I did know was very well is, you know, things like AutoCAD, Photoshop, SketchUp, the stuff I still use today. And going into uh, the work practice, they very much put me into areas that I could do, which was, you know, very nice of them. But I wanted to learn BIM. I wanted to be put on a project where I can learn it because I have went to study later down the line, the like a Revit and stuff like that but it's very difficult to do if you're never using it every day <laughs> my problem I found when I was working in practice is the three people who came in with me were different on different levels or in different areas so I never really got to see them and I was with a group of people who were either part twos part threes um, architects or and then our director who was usually the one I was listed with um, became my also personal tutor so practice I worked for they've been around for a while they've done you know many times they've gone to Portsmouth University showcase their projects so they're very well rehearsed with the RBA learning structure or the PDRs and stuff like that I think at the beginning the first up until Christmas so I started there in September of 2015 so up until Christmas I was actually you know enjoying it I was learning about you know medium to large size projects like uh, new housing estates. So I was doing projects in the South Downs. I was doing school extensions in Croydon and various things like that. So it was all kind of diverse. But what I started to realize is that they weren't 
pushing me in different areas. Um, I wasn't being shown things I didn't already know. Um, and I'm not sure why that was. And it really dawned it on me because obviously up to the first point of Christmas, you're, you do your appraisal, your three-month appraisal with your mentor. He was sort of blaming all that on me. And that was where it dawned on me, actually, why is that my fault? <laughs> I remember sitting there with him and I was like, look, I haven't been able to go out and do this yet. You haven't shown me that yet. And they were oh, well, you know, all the projects are at different stages. And unfortunately, yours just haven't got anywhere on site yet. And I said, right. But then I remember having a conversation with the other part ones who have been to site, who have been showcasing here or been doing this or been learning different things on different departments. And it's just my department who somehow I, I slipped the net on that one. But as time went on, and like I mentioned, Christmas, I ended up basically without work to do inside the office. And there would be days where I'd be sending internal emails out saying, can anyone give me some work to do? But everybody was too busy. So logically dictates, if you're too busy in a practice, you, you've got a part one who can help. Why didn't you let them help? <laughs> you know, what I end up doing, and I think fundamentally started the toxic relationship I had in my part one was when they got me to declutter and organize their library which meant me just going around the entire office collecting all their samples that they don't need or book collections they had given from carpets or doormongers or stuff like that and I just remember feeling very you know deflated and you know we have two office management admin teams that's their job you know, and I didn't mind doing it because it gave me something to do, but I wasn't learning anything. So again, it became more of a more a struggle to report back to the university about what I was learning. He was trying to blame it all on me. I was saying, well, how can it just all be on me? And he just got very, very frustrated. And there was a point where I did speak to someone from who was designated HR from the company. And I said, look, I feel like I'm getting bullied by my director. I'm not getting the support I need or the... You know, I'm not getting the sort of if I ask questions, which I struggled with at part one, and I'm trying to do so much in practice. If I get stuck, I ask for help and the help I'm getting is not being useful because I was not on my own. I had a housemate from university and I used to sort of he became my uh, my free therapist on a Friday night. And I used to say, like, I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't actually enjoy now getting up to go into the office and go to work. Um, there's something about it that's not quite right or not quite fitting in, but I'll persevere because I really want to learn how the office culture is. And, you know, and again, it was very because they worked with a lot of big contractors like and stuff like that. And this in the practice I worked for very much in, involved with uh, design and build contracts and not necessarily design. They're more like you know, we have an extension. This is how it's going to look. You're going to put it for planning. And we just go, yep, yep, yep. And obviously much of that was done on BIM, which I never learned. And I think that always put me on the back foot because they then didn't give me projects I could do anymore because a lot of it was on BIM. And I think leaving there, I knew, the, I knew they weren't going to let me uh, refer back to me because they saw me as more of a hindrance than actually someone they wanted to re-employ. I think overall in my part one experience and leaving my part one, I didn't think I wanted to return back to HW in the end. I mean, after doing some HR 
report with them regarding my mentor and how I felt like I wasn't actually treated well. And them saying, yeah, we understand that, but it's just the nature of the director and that's who he is as a person. I just didn't accept that as an answer or a response to my problem. And I think when I left, and even if they did offer me a place again, I don't think I probably would have returned. I hope there's no part one students uh, out there who are going through a similar thing. I really do. I uh, really hope not. So sorry about that. After you finished working there, you went on to do your part two and you switched from Portsmouth and went to the Centre for Alternative Technology in Wales. Can you tell me about your experience at this university, which is a leading university in sustainability? Yeah, so I kind of fell into it, so to speak, because when leaving my part one year out, I had no idea what I wanted. I, at that point, nothing really kind of interested me in a field or what specialises. I think what I remember thinking back to was my part, my year three end of year project, which was, I think, to do with homelessness, building a self-sufficient food bank, effectively, in a soup kitchen. I went above and beyond and tried to make it then, back then, was um, to make it more kind of self-sufficient, having bio-waste generators and solar panels and, you know, more energy. And I did this without thinking about it, or at least subconsciously, whereas other people didn't even approach that in uh, part one but I kind of did and I think that's what gave me the upper edge on my project and got it almost a um, I think it was almost 70 percent but anyway when I was in practice during my part one I did a lot of Briam stuff because that was relatively straightforward I think I had a disgust in the way Briam was laid out and how it worked and how kind of disparate it could be between actual true sustainability looking you know and as opposed to just a tick box exercise and i think i didn't enjoy that i enjoyed more of um listening to hugh hayward who was one of our lecturers and quite renowned for sustainable architecture and he did a book on i think it was 101 ways to improve a building or something like that i can't remember the name of it now on the top of my head but it's definitely a good book to read and it's a little book and he, you know he's a really great lecturer but you know coming out of my part one and working year out i moved to the channel islands in guernsey with my partner at the time uh, her family are from there and I thought well I didn't really have any roots settled down yet so I was quite educating and quite moving forward and quite enjoyed that freedom I had about moving around all over the place. I think when I, it came to be then my studying I was genuinely mainly looking for places or practices that would do part-time in the sense of where I can come in for one week or one month and go home again for the next couple of months because I really couldn't see myself living in the Channel Islands and doing a part-time or a full-time course and a master's course. And at the time, I had very little finances to be able to do anything, so I couldn't even put a deposit down on a flat to be able to live full-time near the universities. And that became more transparent. And I think it came to by chance with CAT. And when I started looking more into what they did and how they ran their course, it absolutely suited me to a T. And I really encourage people to maybe even look at it if you are you know, interested in sustainability. It's not an RIBA accredited course, but it's definitely ARB. And, but what they gave me was uh, flexibility to be able to work from home three day, three weeks a month, and then you spend one full week in the university uh, living on site. 
you create this really sense of, okay, my time is precious. And I think that was one transferable skill I learned a lot when going from practice into doing my part two is time management was key. And I think it only improved when I came and transitioned into going into the Center for Alternative Technologies because it was such a totally different kettle of fish because, you know, you didn't have then the RABA program structure. You had things, you know, if you wanted to learn about photovoltaics, PVs, we can. We can just go watch one of the courses, set them up. If you wanted to learn how um, to lime render a building and see what the properties are, let's go do it. Um, And it was just such a different way of learning. And for people who, you know, struggled academically or even couldn't, you know, there is obviously different forms of learning. And this one was by far the better one because there was 15 of us. Yeah, 15 of us in the end, um, sharing a room with about four different lecturers, all, you know, specializing in their own different fields. And I think we even had a guest lecturers like Leon Architects in North Wales or Mid Wales. I think Chris Leon, I believe. Um, he came over one evening. We heard about his projects and fascinated about his work he did. And we had got to question him and grind him down about passive housing because he didn't believe in them <laughs> uh, at the time. And it was just, you know, and then at the end of the evening, because we would do 12 hour days of lectures and studying and stuff like that. At the end of the evening, we all had the chance to relax with the lecturer and get to talk to them on a personal level in that sense. If you got stuck on something, you could talk to them and they'd sit down with you at the end of the evening to go through. And I think the support difference between Portsmouth and the cat was almost night and day. Actually staying on site for a whole week, you, your bond of friendship between the 15 people you're with grew because you're all in the same boat together. So you're all able to support each other a lot better than you ever did at university, uh, at least a traditional university in my opinion, because you're there together day in, day out for seven days. And then on the last day, you just breathe and relax and then go away for three weeks doing whatever it is your own life is entails but as long as you did all the coursework and the exams and the design I and mean, it did create this sense of okay you've got one month to do an entire project a report and all your uh, research and studying all before you get back <laughs> and it was an amazing roller coaster and the other benefit was it was only an 18 month course the one I had so it meant that I finished six months earlier than anyone else at doing their master's. I loved it. I loved the university. I loved the courses and the projects we were given. And, you know, they took the word sustainability with a pinch of salt. They went back to old school roots. You don't need to have air source heat pumps and anything like that. You just need to design better. You know, you have to think about the space and the landscape and the language you're in, the context you're around. You didn't necessarily need to even use a computer if you didn't want to. You could still draw things up and have maybe one drawing but as long as that one drawing told the entire story of your project didn't even care if it wasn't finished they just wanted to see that passion and that drive forward and I think coming to the the ARB part two examination where we did our final project the examiners who come from obviously all walks of um, the country he said the good thing about CAT and the one thing he really loves and enjoys about studying at CAT is that when we talk about material and technology it's not just about how it touches feels or smells you actually know the technical side how thick a beam has to be you know how much timber would need to be here what's the value of that building we had to learn all that 
to be able, I mean, we even worked out how the carbon footprint of our building would be. So all these things that aren't necessarily taught in under an IBA course because they're not architecturally relatable. And that's something I learned and got quite confused by when I came out of part two. You've gone from your part one, you've gone to CAT, you, you've got to part two. Uh, what what happened next? Because the traditional thing is to go again into have another year out before you uh, would sit your part three. So what happened? Uh, so I I came out of part two, like I mentioned, six months earlier. So it was around February 2018, I believe. I think it was 2018. It was around that time. I was obviously still in the Channel Islands and I was really trying to stay in the Channel Islands. Because I, like I mentioned, I did enjoy the little island of Guernsey but what I found starkly different between the UK mainland and Guernsey is that they the name architect isn't protected over there so anyone that was calling themselves an architect and therefore the pay rates they were giving were almost diabolical I think they were around at a region of around 15 to 16,000 a year on an island that has the cost of living comparable to London it was shocking you know unless you're in the financial sector you're you barely on anything and they didn't have a welfare the same way the UK has. So I struggled to find part two work there. So I had to look back to the UK. You know, ultimately, I ended up moving back to my friend who I left from Chichester. And he had a house there then at that point. And I did get a couple of months around, around February to about September, just very much me going back and forth looking for job interviews and really struggling, honestly. If it wasn't that I had not enough experience due to the fact that my part one didn't allow me to go out on site, so I didn't have enough site experience or that I wasn't allowed to run a project, these all had detrimental impacts on what I was then able to bring as experience from my part one. It really grinded me down all right up until September. And I remember I did another interview in, a, uh, again, a largish company of 100 employees in Havant, I remember sitting there almost defeated. I just remember being almost lost my enthusiasm to try and find part two work. But they hired me almost instantly in a week. Like I didn't even get back to my friend's house in Chichester by the time and they came back and offered me a job. At that point, that obviously cemented my sort of relationship where I had with my past then because I obviously not wasn't going back to Guernsey. Otherwise, that would be a very expensive commute. You know, and I, I think mentally I was in a mental whirlwind because... I had set myself this program and this way of thinking for a while. And then all of a sudden it just got thrown out the window and I'm back in the UK again, back in, almost feels like I went backwards because I ended up in a big practice I didn't want to be at. I think after about a month. Yeah, mentally I was done. I couldn't work for big projects anymore. I just wanted to be able to do something that I can say, wow, I was really good at that and really proud of it. I mean, I didn't want another Briam excellent project. And considering what I learned as a part two at university, I couldn't see how Briam was ever sustainable anymore. And it just made me wonder about why they employed me. Was it because they just needed staff? Or was it actually they did pay attention to what I wanted and what I wanted to achieve? guess I thought there was a calling out there because I went for an interview back in the summer before me starting the job I was at then in November 
um, I had an interview in the Cotswolds for a historical architect and at the time he didn't want to employ me because of the same old spiel that you get from not having enough experience. Um, however, he contacted me then in October of that year, 2018, I believe, and to say, would you like to give be given the chance as the person I employed never wanted to do the job? And I guess at the time I should have realised what it was, but I was too happy to move on. I wanted a new start. I wanted that new fresh break to be able to do my own thing. So I thought, ah, great, this is amazing. You know, I got paid, well, I was offered 24000 which um, you were talking about four years ago, five years ago. And I was like, yes, well, great, I'll take it. I will hand in my notice because I was in probation with this big company next week. And yeah, on the 1st of November, I think it was, of 2018, I moved and packed all my life yet again. I moved up to um, in the Cotswolds and completely alone. It was, for me, it was exciting at the time uh, when I moved. I enjoyed it. The practice I was working for, he was supportive. He, you know, he put me in an Airbnb for a week whilst I found a place to live. He loaned me the money to be able to pay and then I paid it back during my salary as a salary sacrifice sort of system that he did for me. And again, he was incredibly supportive at the beginning. You know, and I got my own place and I was, you know, like anyone at that age, (laughs) I was building my life back up again. You know, I had a flat that basically just had the bare essentials, a bed, a chest of drawers, a fridge freezer, washing machine, um, and a sofa and a TV. And that was about it. There wasn't barely anything furnishings or anything, but it was mine. And that's what I found very much. I have never felt that before because either it was a house share or it was with my ex-partner's parents. So it actually gave me a great sense of pride at what I was doing. But, yeah, there's always a but. I think shortly after the Christmas break and me coming back, I think around February time, we were, I was coming up to the end of my probation. And in January, he hired a new architect who I got on really well with. Um, he was quite supportive. He allowed me to learn with him. But it was quite clear that the f- same frustrations that I was finding he was struggling also it was about his deadlines his trying to achieve the impossible in a timeline that was deemed impossible and I think I just couldn't he couldn't understand and I couldn't understand why was he getting so upset and I guess it's down to money down to how much you need to make each month was getting his anxiety up high but his frustrations then were let out to us which is terrible management I mean was a really good architect but a terrible manager of people in time and what his expectations were were vastly different than what was trying to do in the time frame he was given if that makes sense i mean i learned that you can do a lot and you can achieve a lot in a short pace of time if you use your time management skills something i learned from part two however there is a point where it just can't be done without doing overtime and the amount of overtime I did, looking back, is just silly. I mean, one point he used it as almost like a blackmail. Uh, he said, if you do the overtime now, I will allow you to pay off more of your debt that you owe me. And I just felt this stuck in this like whirlwind of, oh crap, oh no, I shouldn't be doing this now, should I? I just remember watching weekends go by where I'd be working until 5, 6 p.m., starting at 9 a.m. like it was just a normal day. 
And it just wasn't fair because I never got time off. I just, I don't know, because I was on my own, I didn't see it as a hindrance at that point. However, it become more apparent the more the time went on. And when I came up to my end of my probation, or at least the first three months, he was humming and hawing whether or not he should keep me on or not. Um, and at the same time, I think only a month or so passed before he offered the same uh, deal or offer to the architect and say, look, I want to keep you on. Uh, would you consider working with us? And he turned around and said, no, I don't want to work. And at the same time, I think it was just a week before, he told me how terrible I was doing. My performance wasn't good. And he just sat there listing out everything that he wanted as a job role requirement and everything that I couldn't do. And I tried to get into one back then that it's more to do with dyslexia and lack of support in that area than it was for me to do the job because I knew mentally how to do architecture I knew how to do planning drawings I knew the consistency what he wanted and the precision that what he wanted but my problem was with my dyslexia I just couldn't see the problems until he pointed them out and that I think fundamentally was started to break down our relationship because he just fixated on the little minor mistakes. It could be, you know, a line weight was the wrong line weight or a grammar check wasn't picked up. And it's just silly things like that, but it really got him frustrated. And after the architect left, he then said, Luke, I just can't keep you on as a part two. You're just not be able to perform. I can't trust that you can do the job. So I turned to him and said, look, how can I make this work? Because I really want to learn. I'm enjoying where I work, sillyly me back then. And I want to be able to help you and your company grow. You know, my biggest goal in life has always been that sense of pride of helping others. So I ultimately, I wanted to help him too. And he said or suggested that I go on a lower pay scale as a part one. And I was like, right, okay. And I talked it through and my parents and my family and my friends were all like, well, you, what's the alternative? You've got nothing else. So you've got rent to pay. You've got bills to pay. You're just going to have to somehow survive and muggle through because it's only for a three-month period, as what he claimed, until he, I get better and then I can go back up to part two and continue my part three. So at the time, I thought it was a win-win, but trying to live off £50 pounds a month was a bit excessive. Um, I struggled day to day. My mental health deteriorated. My confidence in what I could do was drastically reduced. I don't know how I got through most days until... One evening when we had this planning application having to push through and it was tough because I was doing lots of other projects at the time and there's lots of national trust projects we were doing but this one in particular was just a small house extension which he asked me to do a 3D model of in really high detail and if anyone knows SketchUp it's really tricky to do anything in really high detail because the geometry because how it works is not revit and it's not bim so therefore everything takes longer to do and that said didn't like time wasted and he just assumed that i can get a model done in a day and i think that's ultimately what i learned going to my own practice was if you think it's going to take you an x amount of time double it because just in case it does or something comes up or the computer crashes i learned the hard way but anyway, I digress. So going back to that one evening on a Friday, um, it was probably May time and he wanted to leave around five, half or five, because he wanted to go see a play for it with his daughter. And at the time I was like, yep, I can get it done, be done. 
But for what I considered being done, he didn't. And whatever I did, he got frustrated by because it wasn't the way he wanted it. But then he struggled to actually tell me what he wanted in the first place. So it was almost me guessworking and shoving it in front of him and him saying, no, I don't like that. Do it again. And you can imagine this became really frustrating and very stressful situation when five o'clock hit because then he started to become more agitated and more pissed off as from the better words. And around seven, eight o'clock came along. He was getting more agitated. And at this point, he wasn't just circling work and being patient. He was screwing it up and throwing it back in my face and saying, this ain't fucking good enough, Luke. What the fuck do you call this? Because this ain't architecture. How can you do? How can something so simple take you so fucking long? Anyway, he was getting really agitated. And come about half ten, I I said to him, I said, James, it's done now. Great. Can we enjoy the Friday? I said, I'm sorry that you missed your daughter's play. Can I make it up to you? And he just said, Get the fuck out of my face. I don't want to see you, Luke. You ruined my Friday evening. How dare you do this to me? It's not what I paid you for. I paid you to be able to do part two. And at that point, I said, well, no, you didn't. You paid me to do part one, and you just didn't give me the support. Anyway, at that point, he he had enough of me and wanted me out. And he already told me that he wanted me out because he just didn't appreciate my work. So he immediately asked for my keys and then told me to get out of the, the building. Anyway, so I did, and my heart sank. When that door closed behind me, I I was lost. I was so fragile and alone, and I've never been more scared in my life at that point on that evening. And I remember walking past the pub window thinking, well, I can't even be happy. It's a Friday night. I was so lost, and I couldn't even work. I couldn't even, I couldn't even eat that night, uh, getting home at 10.30. Um, I was lucky I didn't actually turn to the alcohol at that time. I just remember shutting down, going to bed, turning my phone off, all the lot. And the next morning, I was woken up to about three phone calls and a couple of voice messages and text messages from him demanding me to come into the office right now. And I turned, I thought to myself, I'm not doing this. So I turned around in bed and went back to sleep. I just, the fact that he wanted me to come in on a weekend after telling me to get out of his face in a very aggressive, bullying way, it was ludicrous. I ignored him until Monday morning. I wanted him to suffer as much as he made me suffer the entire weekend. My head was all over the place. And at that point, I was lost. I had a few leads where I could go and find work, but I I didn't even know if I wanted to continue with architecture at that point anymore. I was so defeated and done. I just remember thinking and reflecting now is that I did so much overtime for him. I worked so hard to get what he wanted and get some appreciation. I just wanted a thank you at the end of the day, and that was apparently too much. I couldn't believe the way I felt after. I don't know if I felt liberated or if I just felt so defeated. I wasn't sure at that point. And then um, from there, and this is the last practice I worked at before setting up on my own, I moved to Bista, where I currently, currently reside. That was an interesting, uh, you know, universe. Uh, yeah, universe. Um, the practice was of five people, so it's a little bit bigger than one. And everything was going great up until 
what co- well obviously during covid everybody had that same problem in march 2020 um but i met you know i met a partner i i was happy i got, i was allowed to work a bar job to meet new people and actually find myself enjoying the place i worked at and in and enjoying the place i lived at as well more importantly as i had almost the sense of of a friendships at that point and then covid happened and then obviously the bar job went out the window um, any plans I had set up went out the window or like many hundreds of millions of probably people had the same problem you know I made all these plans to force myself to not to ever get back into that situation and going from where I was seven thousand pounds in debt to then paying off all my debts uh, from friends and family and credit card to then being financially stable again that was the most thrilling thing I did um, in sense of achievement and then during Covid I knew I had to pick up the difference of furlough pay so I got myself a retail job to just keep supplementing my income and you know I was working from home like the rest of us and again everything was fine you know there was a few hiccups in the office because I was getting impatient was probably the loosest of the terms because Although I was able to work from home and I had done and I kind of enjoyed it, the fact that I got to program my days again a little bit and there was no commute time. There was no office only for, you know, for this time. So when I had nothing to do, I could focus on doing other things. And I think in office they knew that and they assumed that I'd become complacent, which was never the truth. I I found myself becoming wanting then okay if you want me back in the office I want to push on to my part three I want to be able to do these things and equally if I got stuck I wouldn't to be able to get in more help more support which never really happened after the few first months of going back to the office I remember talking to my director most of the time asking him when can I start it and all of the times his responses were oh well, you just haven't got enough experience yet I don't feel confident of putting your name forward and doing your part three and I was like okay fine um, when can that do so when can I have a time scale when can I get this ball rolling because I'm really eager to get on with my career and wanted to start setting roots and actually move out this house share I was in because I was really fed up with it at this point the experience yet but it will come you know we'll give you projects and i did i got go on site more i got to understand more complications and i guess there was a practice at the time was supporting me yeah you had a you know the the owner an architect an assistant and an office manager and then i was coming in as a part two and again my salary was about twenty four thousand, twenty five, no twenty four thousand. it was in the end and again, I was happy with that. I, I moved to a place through gritted teeth into another house share. But obviously it was more professional, so I didn't mind it too much. The colleague who was the architectural assistant, he became someone I kind of resided in. Again, almost like my friend and therapist, because I would talk to him on our daily walks around at lunchtime. I think coming to the end of why I left architects in the first place was mainly down to the support again, that reoccurring word. I ended up not getting any support when I was trying to settle down in the later years or last few months, if not years, of my practice time. And I think it, one of the things that stands in my mind is two points, really. One was the beginning when my son was born in uh, August 21 and around October, November time when we were all fully back into the office and I was kind of still getting to terms with not being around and being able to support my partner anymore. I came home one day 
to find that my son was struggling to breathe and we were talking to 111 we were getting frantic we ended up going to the a and e and due to covid i wasn't allowed to be in there so my stress and my anxiety were very high at that point and i remember contact being in contact and communication with my boss saying look i'm not sure how it's going to go but I will keep you updated. I'm not sure if I'm going to have to be able to come into work, but I got nothing, no replies, no nothing. But I kept on it, messaging them um, throughout the night because it was in the early hours in the morning. And come 5 a.m., I said to them, I said, look, I've just got home. I'm absolutely exhausted mentally and physically. I don't know if I'm able to come into the office today. However, I just need to sleep. I can work from home when I wake up. I'm sorry. I will get the projects I need done on time. Please give me a call back if you need me. Otherwise, I'll be in the office as soon as I wake up. And I thought anything, nothing of it. But then I got a message around 10 in the morning after about, what, four hours sleep, three hours sleep off my colleague and friend um, to say, please call the office immediately because they want to know where you are. And I called them and apparently because I didn't do protocol or keep to a program, they got really upset with me and that I didn't tell them that what was going on and I didn't do a formal phone call. I mean, I just thought it was a bit ridiculous considering we're in the 21st century and we have different forms of communication. And then that led on to when my partner had to go back to work. And that became stressful and more difficult because, again, they didn't like to flex. They didn't like to move or budge. And so when my partner needed to return to work after her maternity leave, I had to go and speak to them. I had to talk to them about having flexible time or shared parenting because I didn't. we didn't have family. We don't have family near us. So I needed my partner to go back to work because we needed to pay the bills. But equally, I needed to be there for Robin for when my partner was at work. So I, I remember asking my um, employer, saying, like, can we have flexible time? And... She turning to me and go, well, unfortunately, Luke, I have two children of my own and mine take priority. So whatever you need, please write it down. We will consider it in a formal process. So, you know, I listened to them. I respected it. I gave them four options, which is more than I should have ever done because I was trying to be fair and I was trying to be considerate to what their needs were as the business. However, not one of them they considered. And I gave them three options or four options. One was to leave. <laughs> one was to start early so I can finish early. And the third one was third one was to have a half an hour break in the normal lunch hour and then finish half an hour early. Or finally it was to take a pay cut and reduce my working hours, which was not desirable because my pay would go down. So I suggested to them Instead of upping my rent, increase with uh, cost of living, just maintain my current salary, but allow me to leave half an hour early. Well, firstly, they rejected the idea of that pay rise straight on the get-go. And they said, you're not getting a pay rise, Luke, end of. So I was like, right, okay. The others, they said, well, each one of them doesn't help the office in any way and it has no uh, positive impact to the business. And I'm like, well, I'm only asking for half an hour to leave early to be with my family. And not even my family, just to be able to support my partner so she can go back to work. As her job um, allowed her the flexibility of when she could start. Uh, at the same time, everything was falling through at that point because I was just losing any battle I ever thought. And it just became really difficult to get anywhere. And so I remember at the time, just before leaving, was... 
I spoke to NHS Talkspace regarding my ha mental health because it was really affecting me. I didn't know where to be. I didn't know how to begin. I didn't know how to concentrate. My productivity flatlined. I was all over the place. And after speaking with them for a few weeks and trying to do some CBT classes, which was detrimental because they wouldn't allow me the time to do them, although I did tell them that I was doing mental health um, support, they just didn't give me the time to even sit down and do the the classes if they were in the weekday so I then listened to my case officer and she just off on stress I shouldn't be telling you this but just go off on stress I mean before I agreed about going off on stress I remember talking to them pleading to them or even trying to come up with a solution but everything they gave was another excuse as to why I couldn't have flexible work they were always allowed to have flexible time. As a director, she had two kids and was at a moment's notice needed to go to childcare or run off to the doctors. She could because her mum was an office manager and she was a best friend with the architectural director, the owner. So I was always on a losing battle. That's why the NHS, their career support case officer just said, leave, go on stress leave, play their bluff. If they need you and want you to stay working with them they will happily have to help you ultimately so i did go off and stress um, i got a gp um, and they said you are stressed and struggling with this um, i'll give you an initial four weeks leave so i'll give that sick note in and they weren't best pleased with that they saw it as an excuse or just a reason not to work which wasn't ever the case i just wanted them to resolve the issues i had and after the initial four weeks my gp said after another review that she thinks I needed a bit more time, so extended it by another additional six weeks. And I just remember at the time, the whole time I was off, I was I was free. I felt liberated. I felt more time to think again and not stress. Although it's there, the stress was always there because the problem was always there. But it did give me the time to refocus on the things I loved and enjoyed. And ultimately, I still enjoyed architecture. So it goes to say a lot about the practice who thought it was all to do about my family. Even more so when they got me to come into the office to do a welfare meeting. And I, I, I went there. I sat there. They had a third party to do the minutes. And when I got a copy of the, the transcript of the minutes, I refused. I said, that's not what was said. They were wrong and inaccurate, and this is what I want them to be re-edited at. And the director got really upset that I was focusing on the fact that the minutes were more important than my mental health. And I said, no, my mental health is a fact of what has been said, and what was written on these minutes are incorrect, and they're not correct in terms of what was said. You weren't being supportive on that meeting. You were just telling me that it was my family that were the problem, and office work was not, which I disagreed with wholeheartedly at the time. But sure enough, after the about seven weeks in, I agreed to them to come back to three days a week. I think partly because the statutory sick pay that I was getting was not covering the bills and I couldn't work whilst on stress. And I knew that. But I, you know, my company doesn't support me on stress or in sick leave or anything. So I needed to come back to work, even pro rata, just to help pay the bills and get student uh, universal credit support at the time. And as I did, I then 
gradually my interest in, my interest in architecture still remained and I think that's what led to me starting up my own business because at the time I just had a Facebook page and I just shared my old portfolio works and I put in buzz questions at the time because I didn't have actual work I just had my university work and I just started talking about things I enjoyed ultimately I came around August time I actually did get some work and someone gave me a chance and I think I ran with it from that point. I wanted to do this. And I put in my notice in the first week of September after a Monday morning meeting. And it came to no surprise to him in a way because I handed them my notice after a meeting and they didn't react. There was no facial reactions. There was no, oh my God, you're leaving us. How come you're leaving? Is there anything we can do? Which I've had previously and other practices. Um, it was just, okay. And that was kind of it for then three weeks, four weeks, until the end of the probation period. And the uh, probation period, the end of the notice period, sorry. And I I kind of got to the last lunchtime and there was nobody else in the office. He was with my colleague left. Uh, well, left, he was on holiday. And they brought me into the office to basically have one last hurrah with me. And basically told me that they knew I was had my own business. They always knew. And that I should never have done that. And it was how disheartened and how unprofessional it was to go behind their backs. Um, we're not giving you a reference. You know, you can you can not consider architecture with us ever again. How dare you do this? And all the time I was like, well, I haven't done anything wrong per se. Just I followed my love and desire to do architecture. And it just led me down a different path. They even tried to argue that I did it in my lunch break, but my argument there was that I was on lunch break. It was a pay, unpaid time off work. If you pay me for my lunch break, I'd be different. And you can argue that I was doing work within the frame of working with you, but I wasn't. Anyway, I left that place. I would have said it in a heavy heart, but only because I did gain a good friendship with However... I think ultimately that it was the right decision to do at the time for my family and my own mental health was to get away from that place and start afresh. And I think having my own business at that point was that new fresh start. Yeah, I just wanted to just clarify, was it a chartered, an RBA chartered practice? It was an RBA chartered practice. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Based on your experiences with practices you know i'm interested in what life is like practicing uh working in a very traditional um practices that are in semi-rural locations you know and do you have yeah. um, any examples of of poor leadership you've probably mentioned quite a lot of that but <laughs> more you wanted to yeah i mean i think so i think like when i was um the last practice i mentioned um yeah they were very cult-like you know you had the director uh, who'd been who opened up the practice or well, I think his dad did and he inherited it when his dad passed away it was almost like a cult because he obviously ran the ship he mentored and brought up Tamsin to become an architect because of her mum being her his secretary and it just became really weird because then it didn't matter what was said, who would do what in the office. It was their word and ours. And it didn't matter if we considered the right thing of the business. You know, for me, who'd come from a very particular background in detail and attention to detail and having that passion for sustainability that they always said they did. 
if I tried to challenge what the systems were or how the standards are, I just got shot down ultimately. And if I questioned about how the practice did certain things or why don't we do 3D modeling or, you know, why aren't we editing our sketches we're doing and stuff like that, it just became really, really hard work. And, you know, and I felt like I always never fitted in. And if I didn't partake in the lunch meals and pay towards them, I would get shot down and how dare I not partake in the office culture and it just I don't know you know one day I did refuse it and I got really upset I really upset the mother and daughter because it was her birthday and because I didn't want to contribute five pounds towards her birthday lunch they go Luke why are you being so childish and it's you know it's just little things like that that makes me feel like would you ever get that in a big office? Usually directors, if it's a birthday, would come in with cakes or coffees and say happy birthday at lunchtime. But there was never this expectation to join in if you didn't fancy or didn't believe in what was producing at the time. And I think I say about office culture and when you mentioned about that you know, difference. And I think that ultimately is what it was. And I think that's my experience of it anyway. No, I really appreciate that. And maybe the next, the next two questions I'm going to sort of merge into, into one in a way. So I'm interested, yes, about your, your, you were moving into self-employment and setting up uh, your practice now, but I'm also interested in the fact that, you know, we've got, we've got great technology now. You can work in many different locations you can work on projects anywhere in the country even if you're in a semi-rural location a practice so 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 if you could tell me you know about that and your practice and, and what and how you got that set up and how how it's all going so i think storyboard really came to be over a hot meal on a november um, of 2021 and I was talking to a friend and I was saying like how I just wish I could do things differently, how I know what I can do and I know what I'm good at and I don't understand why I can't do this in practice. And he said, well, why don't you give it a go? Why don't you challenge yourself? And at the time, I just didn't think anything of it because I was like, how am I supposed to do that? It's such a massive, gigantuous task to be able to set up a company on your own. But I think I started to play similar things what I learned when I was at university was you break it down into chunks and you can learn each one as they go along. And at the time, I had time. I, you know, I couldn't really do much other than work and get really low about it. So I needed something to be passionate about. And I think ultimately trying to show that passion when I was off on stress was ultimately what led me then to go, you know what, I can do this. I believe in myself, I can set up my own business. And I think the name Storyboard originally came from, yeah, telling that story. Um, something that architects I've worked with struggle to do. They, you know, they talk about the ideas they've come up with and the strategies they want to do because they've listened to the client, but it sort of doesn't translate very well when it, then you're looking into the more planning side and even, you know, the environmental side, there's no thought process to it. At least the work I've done, I've never, it's always been like, oh, we've added insulation because we need to hit building regs. So I think ultimately I wanted to tell that story. I wanted clients to understand and be in control and be confident in when they go for planning that they have confidence in what I've produced and they can obviously mark against it. And when the planners come back, maybe with a rejection or a condition that the client themselves also know. And I think what you're saying about, you know, about being located 
in one place but you know i've got i haven't actually had a project yet local to me all of my work has been far afield like the furthest one i've done is probably in formby in liverpool um and i haven't been visited the site and i don't feel like i need to i needed to understand it but i've done that through the client and his experience i've done that by videos um, I've done that by research, va- evaluating the site, looking at environmental, looking at the weather, looking at traffic, publication, services, all these things that you used to do at university, which we don't really see anymore in practice unless it's a larger practice. So I think my core value to Storyboard was based just solely on how can I analyze and do the things I love the most and bring this into a business and add value to my architectural profession and I think as I've been doing this now yes it takes me longer to do but I'm more proud of it I'm more proud of being able to come up with a strategy based on statistics and facts not just based on my ego and I feel like a lot of old school architects like to think and pride themselves of their longevity of their business solely on the amount of reoccurring customers they had but I feel like they keep their customers in the dark and what is achievable just to hide the fact of their price margins. And I'm not entirely sure if that's the right way around doing business. And, you know, me doing storyboard design is I'm completely open and transparent with them. I don't believe in fee quotes. Um, I only believe in how long it takes me and what value I can bring to their project. And I think a lot of the time people love my honesty. I think architecture is mainly to do about understanding space in my opinion and the quality you can bring to someone's home and I think even just starting off small I wanted to be able to help self builders and small house extenders and just to be able to create a house a home and I know it sounds very corny and far-fetched but there's so many architects I've worked with that are just yes people oh you want an extension yes we can do you an extension they will never say no I'm not going to do that because I don't believe in it that's something I pride myself on and I've even come across a project where I refuse to do something because it's a detrimental impact to the environment of the property and also the living space it produces is terrible if I did that so I gave them suggestions and alternatives and I think they appreciated that but I think they were a bit thrown back that I refused to do the work um, based on the fact that it's I didn't believe in what they wanted and I think you we I've always struggled to find architects who did that. Um, maybe it's the fee or maybe they needed the money. Whatever it was, I just, I could never get why architects would just keep doing the same box extension without actually thinking of the other envelope of the building. Or even, you know, if the client is based on a, a budget, why don't you look at the envelope of the property before extending? That's just a simple mathematical equation to me. It's like, maybe it's not an extra space they need. Maybe they just need a better layout. And I think you should always challenge clients and what they want. And I think that's ultimately a job role of the architect, not to be able to just do drawing, because anyone can draw a building. It's just a matter of how much time they want to spend doing it. And, you know, just to end on a high, I guess, I've been going now for about 14 months. I've loved every minute of it. I've been able to plan my days. I've been able to spend time with my son. I can work during the night and invoice in the morning. I'm able to go to sites, see projects, go and visit 
clients, um, pick materials, do scheduling, all the things I learned during my part one and part two, but actually getting paid and valued and respected for what I do is probably the most rewarding thing of storyboard design, or at least I found. And I encourage anyone out there, if they want to do something like I'm doing, go and do it and collaborate with others because everything is about collaborating and sharing. It's not about keeping it to yourself and saying, I'm better than you. And I want to be able to do that at some point in the future with architect and my storyboard is that I want to be able to encourage part twos or even part threes or even project architects just to be able to say, look, here's a project. Here's your deadline. Get it back to me. I'll pay you. And if I'm happy with the work, you're happy with the work and we working as a whole because I just don't financially see how I can ever employ people in the future. I just don't see it financially viable. But do I love the size of my practice is now just being me? Absolutely. I don't think I would want to put someone in a position where I found myself younger, where doing 37, 40 hours a day, sometimes twiddling my thumbs because it's not fun for anyone. And I know it's paid work to do nothing, but it's not fun being somewhere you don't want to be or do the things you don't want to do just because you have to. And I think ultimately, that's why I set up Storyboard because of that greater flexibility and that enjoyment you get with architecture without compromising on quality of life. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. I hope your mental health now is is much better and you're a much happier person. Yeah, I'm. And in terms of work, um, I always have this sort of Venn diagram. Um, I used to pi- uh, push around is, um, you know, you have your work-life balance, your family and relations balance, and your own personal goals and personal development. And if you can get all three of them right, you're living the best life you can. Just getting my work one right is a massive weight off my mind. Obviously, we're all struggling with cost of living and stuff. You know, nobody's no stranger to that one. But I feel like having my business, although, you know, it has its ups and downs, like any small business starting up, Um, I feel so much more happier and more in control of what I'm doing and proud of what I produce now than I ever have done working for other people. That's wonderful. I just want to thank you for being on the second series of the Broke Architect podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Please share, subscribe and comment to support the channel. Architect.